Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Past Lives Podcast, and I'm your host, Simon Bowne. My mission here at the Past Lives Podcast is to investigate evidence that demonstrates survival of the human soul. We look at past life memories, near-death experiences, spirit communication, and other incredible phenomena. To get access to the extended versions of the episodes, you can join the Past Lives Podcast Patreon campaign. And when you sign up for $5 a month, you get an extended episode every week. And for $2 a month, you get an extended episode every month. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash pastlivespodcast. Or click on the Patreon button on my homepage at pastlivesypnosis.co.uk. Also, when you book a past life regression hypnosis session with me and you're a patron, you get a 25% discount. And I'm offering a free consultation call, which can be booked on my website. The links are in the show notes and you can find the show notes for this and every other episode on my website. This week I'm talking to Dr. Bruce Grayson about his book, After. A doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. Bruce Grayson is the Chester Carlson Professor of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences and former director of the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia Medical School. He co-founded the International Association for Near-Death Studies with Dr. Raymond Moody and for 27 years edited the Journal of Near-Death Studies. He is a co-editor of the book, The Handbook of Near-Death Experiences, 30 Years of Investigation. He has researched near-death experiences for over three decades and has done more than 75 presentations to national and international scientific conferences. He has over 100 publications in academic, medical and psychological journals and several research grants and awards. Thank you, Dr. Grayson, for coming onto the podcast and giving us your time. It's very kind of you. Well, thank you, Simon, for inviting me. I wanted to talk to you about your book, After a Skeptical Scientist's Journey to Understand Life, Death and Beyond. So could you give us an overview of the book? Well, I've been... um researching near-death experiences for about the past half century. And I started off as a, uh, um, a diehard materialist, not thinking there could be any way this could, this could possibly be real. And over the decades, I've been persuaded uh, by the evidence that there is something real going on here. And this book, I've been planning on writing a book like this for uh, almost my whole career. And it wasn't until now that we finally have the scientific sophistication Uh, and knowledge about near-death experiences to make a coherent story out of it. So this book, After, 
uh, contains basically what I've learned about near-death experiences and also how it has changed my attitude towards them over the course of doing all this research. And when you first moved, say, from a really strong atheist, materialist point of view, if it was that strong for you, what caused you to move over? Well, it must have been quite something quite shocking and quite powerful to make you really question what you were thinking. Well, it's, it's been a gradual process uh, over the years. Um, I started out uh, in, in a scientific household. My father was a chemist. And we just never talked about anything spiritual or religious in our in our home. Um, it it wasn't that we were anti-spiritual. We weren't about atheists. We just it just never occurred to us to talk about anything like God or soul or spirit. It just wasn't part of our our world. Our world was the the physical world, and uh, what you see is what you get. So I went through medical school and college and medical school with that attitude that the physical world is what we live in. And then shortly after I started my psychiatric training, I was, went down to the emergency room to visit to see a patient I was supposed to evaluate who had overdosed, and she was completely unconscious, so I couldn't really talk to her. Um, but her roommate had brought her in and was waiting for me down the hall in a, in a waiting room. So I talked with the roommate, got some information about the patient, what she was dealing with and so forth, and what she might have taken. And then went back to see the patient, and she was still totally unconscious. So I arranged for her to be admitted to the intensive care unit overnight, and I would see her in the morning when she awoke. When I went back in the morning, she was barely awake, had hard trouble opening her eyes. I introduced myself, and she said, yes, I, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. Well, that kind of threw me because I thought she was unconscious. So I said to her, I didn't know you could. You knew who I was. I thought you were completely unconscious. And then she said, not when you were talking to me. I, I saw you when I, you were talking to my roommate. Well, that kind of threw me because I, I couldn't imagine how that could be. Um, the only way she could do that is to say she left her body and came down with me to the other room. And that made no sense to me because as far as I could tell, I was my body. So how can you leave it? So I said to her, you know, you mean the nurses told you I talked to your roommate. And then she opened her eyes fully for the first time and said to me, no, I saw you. And then she told me about the conversation I had with her roommate, everything we said, what we were wearing, where we were sitting and so forth, not making any mistakes at all. And that just blew me away. I didn't know what to make of this. Um, but my job then was to help her with her confusion. I couldn't deal with mine at that point. So I, I tried to put it aside and try to just work with her. Um, I didn't dare tell any of my colleagues about this. They think I was crazy. Uh, but part of me was still thinking that this is some kind of a trick. Maybe she and her roommate had concocted this thing to, to stubble some of me. I, I don't know. But I kind of kept putting it out of my mind for a few years until I met Raymond Moody, who wrote a book in 1975 called Life After Life, in which he gave us the term near-death experience and described these phenomena. And then I realized for the first time that this was not just one crazy patient's experience. This is a common thing. It happens to a lot of people. And I couldn't understand it at all. I couldn't explain it. So as a scientist, that meant I need to study this, try to understand it. And here I am 50 years later, still trying to understand it. Yeah, I know it's in the book. You said you're trying to get to the bottom of it 
but uh, I suppose yes. you, you never can really. It just goes on. There's always something new to learn. That's right. The more we learn, the more confusing it is, the more uncertain we are about what we know. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was near-death experiences kind of tailored to the individual. It's, it's almost like it's, um, I don't know if it's staged or it's the theater of the near-death experience. And also people, their cultural background will influence what, they, what happens to them in their near-death experience. And it's almost like, right. uh, I suppose from a spiritual point of view, which you, you don't go into much in the book, it's almost like it's, they've looked at this person and thought, what, what is the best thing we can <laughs> do to get them on the path we want them to be on? Right. It's like a real spiritual kick up the ass. Right. So uh, have you thought about why it would be that culturally you, somebody would experience something, say in the West, would be different to what somebody in India would experience or somebody in Japan? Sure. Well, you know, when you ask someone who's had a near-death experience what they went through, the first thing they say almost always is, well, I can't put it into words or words don't do it justice. So, of course, we researchers say excitedly, great, tell me about it which means we're forcing them to distort the experience by putting it into words. So they tell us what happened using whatever metaphors are familiar to them. For example, many, many of them will talk about a warm, loving being of light that they interpret as a deity. And as they're telling me about this, they'll say, I'm going to call it God so you'll understand what I'm talking about. But it's not the God that I was taught about in church. It's something much bigger than that. And some will frankly say, well, you can call it God, or you can call it Krishna, or you can call it Buddha, or you can call it um, the source of all that is. Uh, none of those really get to it. It was just this incredible, all-loving, all-knowing being that I felt a part of and, and felt it loved me and cared for me. So we have different cultures putting different labels on the same phenomenon. Uh, this is not limited to the deity. It's, it's almost every aspect of the near-death experience. For example, many people report going through a long, dark, enclosed space to get from this physical world into another realm. And in Western cultures like the UK and the US, people are likely to say, I went through a tunnel. But in some Asian countries where there aren't a whole lot of tunnels, they may say, I fell into a well or I went through a cave. I had one person that I interviewed who was a truck driver who said, and then I got sucked into this long tailpipe. So people use whatever metaphors they can think of to describe what happened to us. So I don't think culture determines what they experience so much as how they describe what they experienced. Now you also asked about the fact that they seem to be, near-death experiences seem to be tailored to the individual. And that is true. Uh, and that, it's a little difficult for me to understand how that is. Um, now, when I ask near-death experiences about this, they say things like, I got exactly what I needed. Or, alternatively, I got exactly what I could handle. And those are different ways of talking about why they, what they had was kind of custom-made for them. Whether that's made for them by a spirit of some kind, or whether they themselves took play a role in creating, co-creating this experience. I can't tell, but it seems to be true that each individual takes away from the NDE what he or she needed to get out of it. 
And also, we come across the distressing near-death experiences. Yes. How did you feel? What did you think when the first time you heard of a distressing one? Because everything we heard about NDEs before that was how it was all love and light. Exactly. In the late 70s and early 80s, all we heard was the blissful ones. And the first time I heard about a, a frightening one, which actually happened from one of my colleagues, um, my first thought was, well, that's not an NDE, that's something else. But it had a lot of the same hallmarks of near-death experiences and had some of the same after effects. So I started decide, decided to try to look into it, see if there were more of these. And that colleague and I eventually collected 50 cases of distressing near-death experiences, frightening or despairing. And we found that the different, there were different types. Some of them were um, blatantly hellish uh, imagery, like fire and brimstone and demons. That was a very small minority. And those were people who exclusively had been raised in a culture such as Roman Catholicism that would promote that kind of belief. I never heard it from someone else. There's also a large contingent of people who find themselves in a dark void with no sight, no sound, uh, nothing but their consciousness in blackness for eternity. And that for most Westerners is terrifying. However, I've also talked to a few Hindus who are raised in Asia who tell me that they experienced that black void and it was blissful for them. They interpreted that as nirvana. So again, we have culture determining how you interpret what happens to you. But by far the largest group of these unpleasant near-death experiences were phenomenologically just like the blissful ones, but they're interpreted in an unpleasant way. For example, they may say they were hurled down a tunnel at, at, at terrible speed and faced with this blinding light, and they were trying to get out of there, trying to fight it. And I think what this is, is they're going through the same experiences, but these are people who have a great need to be in control. And no matter what the NDE is like, you're not in control of it. Uh, so this lack of control is terrifying for them. And that's what makes the experience unpleasant. And I say that partly because I've seen a number of people who had this experience and at some point get exhausted trying to fight it and just give up. And as soon as they give up, it becomes a blissful experience. So for those people, it seems like the fighting against it is what makes it unpleasant. And there's a question about how often these experiences occur. How common is the unpleasant or distressing near-death experience? And we don't really have good information about that. Most people who have tried to study this find that a small number, maybe between 1% and 5% of near-death experiences are unpleasant. But we're relying on people to tell us about them. And these experiences are very difficult for many people to talk about. So there could be a lot more out there that we just haven't heard about yet. And talking of deities, uh, there are people that say they meet Jesus and other yes. kind of deities during their near-death experiences. But um, I feel that that would be culturally influenced. But we hear about atheists who meet Jesus as well, don't we? And then we hear about yes. very strong Christians who don't meet Jesus. So it's, right. it's an odd right. kind of thing. And I've got this theory that perhaps they decide whoever they are that make these decisions, that that's what you need. So they'll present Jesus to you. It's not actually Jesus that's there. So do you get that kind of uh, impression? 
Well, it, it could be that. Um, you know, even even atheists who grew up in the UK or the US are exposed to concepts of Jesus, including what he supposedly looked like. Um, so it, it would not be surprising if you went into a near-death experience as an atheist and saw this figure that seemed to be having quite Christ-like qualities, you know, loving and forgiving and protecting. And you project onto that the image that you have culturally of Jesus. One person that I that I knew was a, um, she had been raised Christian, but gave up on that and went into a sort of um, nature worship, uh, a paganism. And when she had her near-death experience, she encountered two deities. And one was a, the Celtic deity, Cernunos, and one was the Buddhist deity, Quan Yin. And when she was telling me this later on, she said, this made no sense at all. You can't have two deities from two different, totally different uh, cultures mixing in the same experience. And she said, what I think this is, is my brain trying to make sense out of these beings that I encountered. Um, it wasn't really those characters. It was just, that's the way my brain made sense of it. Uh, so it's like her, her consciousness kind of interfering, perhaps on a subconscious level. Exactly. Yeah. And again, we're not dealing with the consciousness during the near-death experience. We're dealing with the consciousness when they're back here trying to explain it to us. So many people say, in my near-death experience, everything was crystal clear. But now that I'm back here in my body and inside my brain, I can't make sense out of it without putting these labels on it. Yeah, they, they talk about this incredible perception for their sight and their hearing, but also yes. thoughts. It seems like they can, I suppose you might call it multitasking. They, they can think of so many different things at the same time, but it doesn't yes. seem weird or a problem. But once they're back in the body again, our consciousness is so limited by the brain's processes that they can't recover it all. And also there's that thing of time where they, they talk mm. about the, the place being timeless, which is a yes. hard concept for us as well when we're in this state. It, it's very hard. And this is common to almost all uh, mystical experiences that, they, that there's no sense of time in the other realm. And, you know, when near-death experiences tell you about what happened to them, they will say there was no time over there or time seemed to be stopped or Everything happened all at once. And then they tell you the experience as if this happened, then this happened, then this happened. So when I say to them, wait a minute, you're saying it was timeless and yet things happened in a sequence. How do you explain that? And they'll say, I can't. There was no paradox over there. But when I come back here and try to put it into words, there is a paradox. And that's the same with the life review as well, I believe. They, it's like they see their whole life in one moment and also other people's sort of perspective of them as well and all these different incidents in their life. That's right. They, they, they often uh, say that they saw their whole life flash before their eyes and it doesn't often occur in the sequence. It happens like all at once. And sometimes they see their, their, their past ex experiences not only through their eyes, but through someone else's. For example, one person that I knew had a near-death experience in his 30s when a truck he was working under crashed down into his chest. And he remembered 
his whole life. And one incident in particular stood out for him when he was a teenager, a hot-headed, hot-rotting teenager. He was driving his new truck and a drunk man ran out in front of his truck and almost hit him. So he stopped his truck, rolled down his window and yelled at him. And the man being drunk reached inside the car window and slapped this teenager. Well, that was enough for the teenager. He, he opened the door, got out and beat the poor man to a pulp, pounded him repeatedly with his fists until he was lying unconscious on the side on the, on the pavement. Well, flash forward a couple decades into his near-death experience, he tells me that he relived this whole episode, not only from his perspective, but from the drunk man's perspective as well. And he said, I was in that man's body, looking at my face getting red and angry, and then feeling my fists pounding into his face repeatedly 32 times. He felt his nose getting bloody, he felt his teeth going through his lips, and he felt both at the same time, his perspective and his victims. And this often convinces people who have near-death experiences that we are not separate individuals. We are all part of the same thing. And what you do to somebody else, you do to yourself as well. They talk about it as if they're talking about a hand. And if you just look at the fingers, it looks like they're five individual things. But if you look at the whole hand, you can see they're really all part of the same thing. And one of their lessons from the near-death experience is that we are not individuals. We are all part of something much greater than ourselves, part of the same thing. When people go through that life experience, it's like you say, their life flashes before their eyes. Yes. But at the same time, it's their whole life. It could be decades. And they're going into each experience and experiencing right. from their side and from the other person's side. And there's all the emotion. And like we're saying, it's timeless because they say it's a flash, but it's decades of time. Right, right. And it happens sometimes in real time, quote, in a matter of seconds. Yeah, yeah, because the person f where we are in the, the physical world, they may be getting CPR and they're being resuscitated. And it's just yes. that short amount of time. But it, during the near-death experience, it's a lot longer. I'd, I talked to a guest on the podcast. She said she was had distressing near-death experience and she was in hell for two years. But... Mm. It was maybe just a coma of three weeks in our world. Yes. And that kind of um, time thing it's, it suggests that our brains are just not capable of really understanding the universe. And that, that, because exactly. you yes. mentioned terminal lucidity in your book. Yes, yes. And that almost seems like the brain is starting to break down and it's allowing consciousness through and it's not not so much a reducing valve anymore. Right. There are a number of lines of evidence that suggest that the mind, that part of us that thinks and feels and makes decisions, is not the same as the brain, this three-pound mass of protoplasm inside our skulls. In everyday life, it seems that the mind is what the brain does. When you get intoxicated, that affects your thinking. When you get hit on the head or have a stroke, that affects your thinking. But in extreme situations, like a near-death state, the brain and the mind seem to dissociate from each other. And the mind can be functioning better than ever while the brain is not functioning anymore. And we see that in what's called terminal lucidity as well. People with end-stage dementia 
who have not been able to recognize family for years and cannot speak anymore, suddenly in the minutes or hours before they die, become completely lucid again, carry on coherent conversations. And family often thinks, oh, they're getting better, but then they die. It's as if the brain deteriorates so much that it no longer functions to filter the, the mind and the mind is free to do to come through in its full complexity. Another line of evidence pointing to this is recent uh, studies in the last decade of neuroimaging of people with psychedelic drug trips. And what we used to think that these drugs work by stimulating the brain to hallucinate. But what we found is that with a variety of psychedelic drugs, with the more elaborate mystical experiences people have, you see less and less electrical activity in the brain and less coordination among different parts of the brain. So again, it looks like the brain is getting out of the way, allowing the mind to function. And that sort of leads on to that idea that um, suggests, materialists may suggest that NDEs are the product of the dying brain, or it's because in the hospital they're full of drugs and it's just an hallucination. Well, that's uh, an argument. Um, however, when you try to look at the data, what you find is that the more drugs people are given, the less likely they are to report a near-death experience. Likewise, people have looked at oxygen levels in people who are near death, and they find that people who describe near-death experiences actually have more oxygen going to the brain than people who don't describe them. So it does not appear to be a hallucination caused by metabolic disturbances. Um, it's more a matter of the brain being down, allowing the mind to flourish. Hello listeners, this is Simon. Now as some of you know, I have a diploma in clinical hypnotherapy and I'm certified in past life regression therapy. And in the past few weeks, I've taken many clients through some amazing and healing past life regressions. And I conduct sessions over Zoom and I've had clients from many countries around the world. Now when you go through a past life regression, you will feel totally in control and remember everything. And also I record the whole session and send you an MP3 afterwards. And this gives you space to relax and go with the flow, knowing that you can listen back later and analyse what you experienced if you need to. So if you ever wanted to explore your past lives in a single session, or have an issue you want to work on, you can go to my website at pastlifeshypnosis.co.uk and book a free 20-minute consultation. And at the moment, I'm offering a 25% discount to everyone that has signed up to the Patreon campaign. The link is in the show notes. Wasn't there a study where they looked at remembering a near-death experience where the same part of the brain lit up as when you have a genuine memory compared to a, a hallucination or something imaginary? Yes, yes. There, there was um, a scale developed to, to differentiate memories of real events from memories of imagined events. And this was originally developed to study children who claim to be have been abused uh, in their childhood. And we weren't sure whether they were remembering real events or fantasies. So a group of psychologists developed criteria to determine whether it's a real event or not. And we tried using this scale with people who had near-death experiences. And in fact, the near-death experiences, the memory of NDEs was more vivid than the real experiences and did not look at all like experiences, like uh, memories of fantasies. 
Uh, this has been replicated now in three different countries, and the Italian team that replicated it also looked at brainwaves, EEGs of patients as they were remembering um, their experience. And they found, again, that the EEGs, when people were remembering their NDEs, were like when you remember a real event and not like when you're remembering a fantasy or a dream. And there's also that uh, you talk about, I think it's talking to people with schizophrenia or hear voices, and there are people who have NDEs who hear voices, but they have very different yes. experiences. Yes, it is. Um, the experience of hearing voices for schizophrenics is, by and large, uh, by the overwhelming majority of them, are very unpleasant and unhelpful and frightening. Um, whereas for near-death experiences, um, the voices they hear and may continue to hear after the NDE are usually comforting and helpful uh, and something they want to continue. You discovered a multitude of near-death experience accounts from ancient Greek and Roman sources. Yes, yes. Th There is a criticism that NDEs, are, people are talking about them because they're influenced by it being something they've heard about in cultural, you know, recently, but actually it's been going on for thousands of years. Yes, that's true. And if you look at some of those accounts from ancient Greece and Rome, which is where we have most of them, um, they do sound like something you could hear today uh, from someone who had near-death experience now. Um, in addition, at least in the United States, nobody knew about near-death experiences until 1975 when Moody published his book, Life After Life. However, we at the University of Virginia have been collecting cases of these experiences before that. Now, we didn't call them near-death experiences because we didn't know that name, but we were filing them under things like out-of-body experiences or deathbed visions or apparitions. But after Moody's book came out describing what a near-death experience is, we went back through the files and sorted out these, these old cases that we had uh, for people who reported them before they knew what a near-death experience was. And we compared 20 of those cases, two, actually 24 of those cases, with cases of near-death experiences reported now, matched by age, gender, race, religiosity, how close they came to death, and so forth. And we found absolutely no difference between the ones that were reported to us before Moody's book came out, telling us what we should experience, and now. So in that context, at least, knowing what a near-death experience is did not change what kind of things you reported. And I wonder if the near-death experiences people had so many thousands of years ago have come to give mankind that idea of what heaven and hell is, because they did have distressing near-death experiences such a long time ago, and the heavenly ones. And that's where the whole idea of those places comes from. Yes, yes. You know, a lot of people will look at uh, near-death experiences now and say, well, this is, just, this is just what you were taught in your religion happens at death. But it could be the other way around that what we decided, what the religions decided to, to say about, near, about what happens after death came from near-death experiences. And then with the near-death experiences, the, like the um, distressing ones, they talk about sometimes meeting people who seem to be lost souls, who seem to be really quite nasty. I wonder where those ideas come from, where those people come from, or if perhaps yeah. that all of them are generated by that person's consciousness and they're not actually lost souls. It's all given to them somehow. That, that could well be, yeah. 
you know, we don't know why some people have unpleasant experiences, whereas most people don't. Uh, we tried to look at that question and can't find a good answer. It's certainly not the case that good people have good experiences and bad people have bad experiences. I, I've talked to convicted murderers who had blissful near-death experiences when they had a heart attack in prison. And I've talked to people who led apparently exemplary lives and they had terrifying experiences. That shouldn't be surprising because we have beautiful accounts from uh, Christian saints like uh, St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, who were uh, paragons of Christian virtue and yet had terrifying dark nights of the soul. Um, kind of what uh, Joseph Campbell is called uh, the hero's journey. We have to go through these travails in order to get to eventual light enlightenment. You said in the book that you found interviewing people after near-death experience that there were a number of reasons that they'd want to keep it to themselves. That, that yes. What sort yes. of reasons were there that they wouldn't talk about it? Well, I think the most common one is that uh, they're afraid of the reaction they're going to get. And unfortunately, they have good reason to fear that. Because a lot of people, when they talk about a near-death experience, will have people laugh at them, ridicule them, or tell them they're crazy, or say, as doctors and nurses are likely to say, oh, that was just the drugs you were given. Just forget about it. It'll go away. Of course, it doesn't go away. Uh, some of them may also have bad reactions from family and friends who don't want to deal with this. When people have a near-death experience, it usually dramatically changes their attitudes and values and beliefs. And it's hard for them to go back to the lifestyle they had before. And that can be very difficult for the family, uh, the spouses, the parents, the children. So that causes a lot of problems for the experiencer. And that's one more reason why many of them do not want to talk about the experience. And you had articles, you were saying, in the early years of your uh, investigations. On, you had an article in a magazine and you got some negative reactions from medical people who were saying, yes. I think somebody said something like um, NDEs were the concern of religion and not doctors. Exactly, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that's still the attitude of, of many uh, people, and especially in academic medicine that they feel we should just stick to uh, the, the physical world, the, the physiology of the body, and not deal with those other things. Um, but in fact, we need to because these experiences have a profound effect on our patients' healths and their attitudes towards healthcare. So we need to know about these experiences in order to treat people properly. And you had a the thing where you uh, wanted to do a research, was it? And your uh, the guy in charge said... <laughs> you can't do it if if you want to stay here. Forget it. Just do proper research. I think that's that's right. Uh, you know, some of these people who are still mired in a materialistic mindset feel that the only thing that's proper for physicians to investigate are physiological uh, aspects. So if you can't measure it, if you can't put it in a test tube, if you can't quantify it, then it isn't worth looking at. Um, I don't think that's true. I think as a scientist, we need to look at whatever experiences people have that affects them. And these are obviously experiences that a lot of people have that dramatically changes their lives forever. So how can we in good conscience ignore that, pretend it didn't happen? Yeah, because there's that saying, I think it's in your book, where 
scientists tend to sweep anomalies under the carpet and they'll keep doing it yes. till the furniture topples over. Exactly, yes. And so what do you make of the after effects that people report in their lives? So things like the watches won't work anymore and they get synchronicities. No. And Well, as a psychiatrist, um, I spent my life trying to help people make changes in their lives. And I find that this near-death experience, which often happens in a matter of seconds or minutes, is so much more powerful than any techniques I've learned to change people's lives. It's really remarkable to me. I've studied people now for decades after a near-death experience, and the after effects do not diminish over time. And they form a, a, a predictable pattern. Near-death experiences typically become much less materialistic, much less concerned with matters of the physical world, with power, prestige, fame, competition, and they become much more interested in the spiritual realm, in relating to other people, in relating to nature. They become much more compassionate, much more altruistic, uh, much more looking at the global perspective on things. And this affects their, their beliefs, their lifestyles, how they relate to people, how they think about themselves, everything about them in a very profound way. I suppose there's a common uh, thought amongst people that near-death experiences are all heavenly and afterwards everything's fine, but it can cause great disruption in life. <laughs> it certainly can. You know, it's, it's as if um, this person has a sudden religious conversion and everyone around him is not. And how does he go back to the same life? And often they find that they can't. Um, yeah. One person I knew quite well was was a career Marine. He had been a a schoolyard bully in school and was uh, quite aggressive and macho. And he ended up joining the Marines and was a sergeant in Vietnam and was shot and had shrapnel all over his chest. And he was flown out to a uh, military hospital in the Philippines where he had surgery. And during the surgery, he had a beautiful near-death experience. And when he came back, when he had recovered, he was sent back to Vietnam to try to lead his platoon into battle. And he found that he couldn't shoot his gun. It was unthinkable to him to, to kill someone. So he had to leave the Marines and came back home and, and retrained as a medical technician. And I've got story after story of people who have been through a similar experience where their near-death experience changed their attitudes and they couldn't go back to the life they had. Whether life was a life of violence. I've talked to people who were uh, police officers and people who were in organized crime who couldn't go back to those careers. I've talked to people who were cutthroat businessmen who were, before their NDE, uh, cheating people, swindling people to get ahead. And when they came back from the NDE, they couldn't care less about material goods. They just wanted to help people. So this creates great problems for their careers as well as their relationships. Yeah, I suppose if, if you marry somebody because they got a great career and they're making a lot of money <laughs> and then suddenly they give up and all that, that's... That's going to cause some problems, isn't it? It certainly can, yes. So there's also this thing where it seems near-death experiences' memory of their experience doesn't degrade. And it, you could ask them about it decades later and they still remember it exactly as it happened. Right. And that, that was kind of surprising to me because as a psychiatrist, I've, I've learned a lot about memory and memory is generally faulty. It changes over time particularly memories that happen in crisis situations, in emotional situations, 
uh, when you're maybe drugged or having some metabolic problems. So we would expect near-death experience memories to also degrade over time. But because I've been doing this research for almost a half century now, we've been able to look at people when we first interviewed them in the 1980s and then now in the, in the 21st century and ask them to describe their experience again. And we find there's absolutely no difference. The memory does not change one bit over the decades. And it's strange. It makes you think that that memory is being stored in a different place to where normal memories yeah. are stored. It does. Although we have no idea where more normal memories are stored either. <laughs> but I've talked to a couple of near-death experiences who say that um, it's, they feel that they could almost go back to the experience and go back into it which seems like a weird thing to say, a weird connection mm. to it. And um, I just wonder what's going on there. But yeah. I, that leads me to ask you, when you're doing your research, your viewpoint, if it gets more towards the spiritual side of things, is that something you kind of shy away from and you think, well, I'm looking for more verifiable stuff and commonalities of experience? I don't know if I can give you a, a definite answer to that because I, I grew up with the materialistic world and, and that's what I'm most comfortable with. And I had no training in, in spiritual things and yet I'm forced to confront it by these experiences. So I'm not completely comfortable with it, but I can't deny that it's there. and It, it, it exists and has profound effects on people. One of the ways this research has changed me is that I'm much more comfortable now with not knowing the answers. When I started out my career, I knew that uh, physical science was going to give us all the answers, if not today, then someday. And all the answers were knowable. And now I've seen so many unexplainable things that I don't think we're ever going to understand it all completely. I think that's because our brains and our language are not capable of handling some of these concepts. And I'm comfortable with that now. Yeah, it's like science is a journey, not an end point. And That's right. somebody said science just learns better ways to be wrong. Exactly, exactly. None of our theories are uh, what's really going on. They're not reality. They're just maps. And all you can say is that this current theory we have is better than the last one. Not that it's reality, but it's better than the one we had before. Sometimes I feel that there are materialists who look at near-death experiences and all sorts of spiritual things, and they tend to confuse unproven with disproven. It's like, well, right. if you can't prove it, then it's not real. But that's not it at all, is it? That's right. That's right. Um, you know, often the materialists will say, we know this is the way things are. And yet, when you look back in history at what people thought, what scientists thought 100 years ago, we laugh at that and think of how naive they were. And I don't see how anyone now can say that people 100 years from now won't look, look back at what we think and think how ridiculous we were, how naive we were to think these things. Yeah. So how, how can you possibly have faith that we have the answers here? And so you came up with something called the Grayson Scale, and that was quite a while ago. Would yes. you, if you were to do it today, would you do it differently? Uh, well, we know a lot more now than we did back in the early 1980s when I developed that scale. For example, at that time, we didn't know a lot about the unpleasant experiences. 
So the scale includes nothing about them. So I would have reworded the, the, the questionnaires um, if I had known more about it back then. For example, some of the questions deal with extreme positive emotions, joy, bliss. And now I would just say extreme emotions of any type um, because they're not all blissful. Um, there are other things that we know now that I didn't put in the original scale, like the ineffability, the difficulty putting it into words. I didn't put that in the original scale because I didn't know about it back then. Do you get many accounts of near-death experiences and they be, we may talk about something like reincarnation? Not many. There are some. And that usually comes up in the context of a life review. When people will say that I reviewed my entire life but there were things in that life review that I, I'm sure didn't happen in this lifetime. And yet they had the same quality to their mind that the memories of this life did. Uh, and I do have a couple of examples of um, near-death experiences who remember things that they think were from a past life. And when we track down what they're saying, we can corroborate that these things really happened to somebody else. Well, that's fascinating. And I, I think there was one of the accounts in your book where a lady was in her life review and she was told that you can you can die now, but if you do, you're going to have to go back and live another life. But and yes. she said she chose to come back to this life to finish what she was here to do. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of suggestions like that from near-death experiences, but the majority of near-death experiencers don't talk about it. It just never came up in their experience. Um, Someone actually looked at uh, reincarnation beliefs among near-death experiencers, and it was about the same frequency as it is among people who haven't had NDEs. So I can't say that there's anything about the NDE itself, which makes people more likely to believe in reincarnation. So I suppose um, uh, you might say that the experience or accounts of knowledge of reincarnation in NDEs is an outlier sort of thing, an anomaly within the NDE, but do you come across other anomalies, other particularly strange things that make you think, hang on, this is going a bit too far now? <laughs> I think all of it is going too far. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, what still astounds me are, are, number one, the accuracy of perceptions when people say they're out of their bodies, seeing things that they couldn't possibly have seen because they were demonstrably unconscious. And in fact, you know, one fellow I interviewed who, who was having a quadruple bypass surgery on his heart and had, he was not only fully anesthetized, but his eyes were taped shut so he couldn't see anything. And he described leaving his body and watching his surgeon flapping his arms as if he was trying to fly. Now, at this point, I'd been a doctor for about 30 years. I'd never heard, seen or heard anything like that. So I thought he was just hallucinating from the anesthesia. So with his permission, I talked to his surgeon who said, yes, uh, that, that's true. That's exactly what he saw. Um, that I developed this habit of after I gown and glove and get sterile and come into the operating room and I watch my assistants start the operation, I don't want to touch anything that's not in the sterile field. So I place my palms against my chest where I know they won't touch anything. And I point things out to them with my elbows rather than my fingers. So that's exactly what the patient said, but he couldn't have known about that. And I've had case after case of this type of thing. Yeah, that's one of the things that really stands out for me is this veridical yeah. aspect of NDEs, because 
perhaps yeah. science could explain some aspects of the NDE, but right. when it comes to people who are their heart stopped and they're flatlined, there's no brain activity, but they have really right. powerful experiences. It yeah. seems very difficult to explain it from a science point right. of view. Another thing about the near-death experience that I find hard to understand and yet can't deny that it happens, uh, many near-death experiences report meeting deceased loved ones in their NDE. And that can easily be dismissed by debunkers by saying, that was their expectation and wishful thinking. They knew they were dying or they thought they were, so they imagined seeing a deceased loved one. But in a number of cases now, we have well-documented cases of people who saw in their NDE a deceased person that they didn't know had died. And there's no way that could be expectation or wishful thinking. An example is a fellow who was a 25-year-old technical writer who was hospitalized with pneumonia and had repeated episodes of respiratory arrest where he stopped breathing. And he had gotten friendly with a young nurse who was with him almost every day. And at one point she told him that she was gonna be away for a long weekend. So he wished her goodbye. And then after she left, he had another respiratory arrest and had to be resuscitated. And during that period, he felt himself out of his body in another realm with you know, beautiful uh, pastoral scene and then he sees this nurse coming towards him and he couldn't understand what was going on. So he asked her, you know, what are you doing here? And she said, I've got to stay here, but you have to go back. You have to tell my parents that I love them and I'm sorry I wrecked the red MGB. And then she strode off in the other direction. He then awoke back in his body with a perfect memory of this experience. And he told the first nurse he saw about this and she ran running out of the room. Well, he later learned that his favorite nurse during this long weekend off had been surprised by her parents for her birthday with the red MGB. Very excitedly got in the car, drove off down a hill, lost control of the car and smashed into a telephone pole dying instantly. And this happened about the same time he was having his near death experience. So there's no way he could have known that she was dead, so he couldn't have been expecting to see her, and certainly no way he could have known how she died, and yet he did. And we've got many cases like this now that we've got well-documented, and I can't explain this. So where is um, near-death experience research going next? Is there an aspect of it that you haven't looked at that you want to, or do you think <laughs> there's something else? Uh, there are many aspects that I haven't looked into. Um, there are many lifetimes worth of research uh, still to be done. Uh, fortunately, uh, there's a newer generation of researchers who are now taking up the torch and are studying the NDE with um, skills and knowledge that I don't have. And there are groups that are looking solely at what's going on in the brain at the time in terms of chemistry and neuroanatomy, physiology. There are others who are looking at uh, cross-cultural aspects that I don't have the expertise to look into. Uh, my perspective has always been as a clinical psychiatrist helping people improve their lives. My interest has been in how these experiences change people's lives and how they deal with those changes. So uh, that is, I think, my, not only my strong point, but my interest. And I'm going to continue pursuing that. For example, my colleague, Marietta Pelvanova and I have recently started a study looking at near-death experiencers who feel they need some help in dealing with the NDE. 
and we get from them information about what type of help they seek, what type of helpers, helpers they seek it from, uh, what they find helpful, what they find unhelpful. And we also interview the helpers and ask them the same questions. You know, um, what do you think helps? What do you think doesn't help? And we hope to develop from this um, some guidelines as to what kind of help people do find helpful and what, what will help people deal with their NDEs. So you're at the uh, University of Virginia, that's right, isn't it? That's right. Division of that's Perceptual right. Studies. Yes. You work with Ian Stevenson and uh, Jim Tucker is there. Did yes. You, yes. Do you ever discuss with them, um, you know, children that talk about past life memories, they talk about the between lives state. Do you ever yes. compare what those children say with NDEs and what NDEs say? Yes. Yeah. In fact, uh, Jim Tucker published an article about this with one of the medical students who was working with him, um, looking at, uh, I believe it, it was um, near-death experiences from Myanmar, uh, and they who described the in-between state between lives, and they found that what those um, children said about the period in between lives was very similar to what near-death experiencers say the other realm is like. So there does seem to be a lot of overlap between what uh, people who just have NDEs say and what people who have uh, past life memories say about the period between lives. So there's, there's a sort of a verification there. It's, I suppose it's very loose. There's not much of a verification, but it's just interesting right. to see the connection. And yes. also there's the phenomenon of deathbed visions where there's something about that that's close to the near-death experience. I think, you know, people are dying and they see deceased relatives coming yes, to visit them. Yes, yes. I think deathbed visions are basically near-death experiences where people don't recover. They just go on to die. And have you um, come across many times where somebody has had a near-death experience, but then one of the medical staff or somebody else in the room has seen something spiritual? Um. I haven't personally come across that, but I've certainly heard about them. There's an emergency room physician in, uh, in the United States in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, Jeffrey O'Driscoll, who has now written a book about um, the experiences he's had as an emergency room physician, in which he will sometimes see the spirits of patients he's operating on as they're, as they're passing on. Um, and... Uh, I don't have an explanation for this. Some people are obviously uh, more susceptible to seeing these visions than, than certainly I am. Yeah. It's interesting because it tends to be, what I find is that it's nurses who see these things a lot more than doctors or consultants. And I, I think that's probably because nurses are, spend much more time in the wards with people than the doctors well, do. Would that be right? That's true. They're, they're certainly much more likely to hear about near-death experiences because they're there with the patient so much more. I think also, though, doctors are much less willing to talk about these things than nurses are. They're much more concerned about their professional reputation. And I, I remember reading about uh, somebody who had tried to talk to their doctor about their near-death experience, and the doctor said, if you carry on like that, I'm going to get you, put you in the psychiatric unit. Yes, yes. I've heard that from many patients that they were referred for psychiatric evaluations when they tried to talk about their near-death experience. Um, thankfully, that happened a lot more in the 1980s and 90s than it does now. 
that more and more doctors now are more enlightened about these experiences and understand that these are common experiences that do not reflect mental illness in any way. They're just um, experiences that happen in unusual circumstances. Do you find it's um, the younger generation of doctors who are much more likely to accept it? Definitely. Uh, you know, it's, it's been an increasing part of our culture for the last uh, several decades. And people who grew up with seeing these things in movies and on television shows are more, sure, more likely to be less resistant to it, less frightened by it, than people for whom they learned about it first when they were in their 50s or 40s. Okay, so it's been great talking to you. The book is After a Skeptical Scientist's Journey to Understand Life, Death and Beyond. And it, that, is that published right now or is it it's coming out in a couple of weeks? It's coming out on March 2nd. Um, in the UK, it's being published by uh, Penguin. Um, uh, uh, Pend it's the Penguin Random House um, uh, imprint. And in the US, it's, it's published by St. Martin's Press. And that'll be on Amazon and all the usual places. Oh, yes. It's, it's on Amazon and all of the sites now for pre-ordering. And also people can get your other books as well. They don't have to wait for that one. Right. Uh, my website, uh, www.brucegreyson.com, has information about the books and about uh, near-death experiences in general. Great. Well, thank you for coming on to the podcast. It's been great talking to you. Well, thank you, Simon. It's been a pleasure. And that was an interview with Dr. Bruce Grayson about his book, After. A doctor explores what near-death experiences reveal about life and beyond. Now, a great way to support the podcast is to sign up on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash pastlivespodcast or click on the button on my homepage at pastliveshypnosis.co.uk. Also, if you're a patron, you get a 25% discount when you book a past life regression session with me. My Instagram is the past lives podcast with an underscore between each word and on Twitter, I am at Simon G. Bown. There is a Past Lives Podcast Facebook group, and if you'd like to join, you'd be very welcome. And if you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or via your favourite podcast app to make sure that you don't miss out on any episodes. And thanks for listening.